This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's get started because we have a historical case with huge implications for police officers across this country, and it's just breaking uh, as we speak. But a Toronto police officer has been sentenced to six years in jail for the shooting death of Sammy Yatim. His name? Constable James Fursillo. He was cuffed inside the court and led away. This is almost unheard of in this country. So it's a, it's a precedent-setting case that I think will have wide-reaching implications within all police forces. Now, if you don't recall the details of this case, Constable, uh, Constable Fursillo killed 18-year-old Sammy Yatim, who was uh, on a Toronto streetcar back in 2013. He was initially charged with second-degree murder after pumping three bullets into the team, and then he shot another six bullets into him after the teen had fallen to the ground. All of that was captured on video by witnesses. Now keep in mind, Sammy Yatim had mental illness, although that was not known at the time. It came out after the fact. Fursilla was uh, acquitted of the more serious charge of second-degree murder and instead found guilty of attempt murder. Now that conviction carries a mandatory minimum sentence of up to five years. But Fursilla's lawyers had argued that would be unconstitutional and that he should be exempt from the mandatory minimum, citing officers have to carry a gun, so they should be exempt. But the judge made it very clear today, right off the top of sentencing, that he had no choice but to sentence. So we knew going in that that there was going to be at least five years for this officer. So there are a few issues here that we're going to look at. First off, should officers be given special treatment? Other issues in this case highlight how police deal with mental illness. You know, do they have the proper training? Or is it the state that is failing people like Sammy Yatim? So we'll tackle all these issues. I want to bring Jeff Freed, who is a criminal lawyer here in Hamilton, into the conversation. Good to have you, Jeff. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm good. You know, it's been a busy morning as we watch this case unfold. And I have to say, I mean, it's very rare when we see a police officer in this country go to jail. But here we have one. Um, Precedent setting how? Well, I think it is very rare, and, and it's precedent-setting in a, perhaps a social sense in that uh, you're right. It's, uh, a, it's, it's un- seldom that uh, police officers are, are prosecuted. It does happen, of course. It's not a rare occasion. Uh, but uh, even more seldom that uh, convictions result. And, and, uh, and then, as you say, even more rare, again, uh, that, uh, that any, when a conviction does result, that it results in a, a fairly a serious and dramatic sentence uh, that includes a substantial incarceration. So, yes, it's, uh, it's quite uh, important that way. It's also important for some of the other reasons that you touched on, and perhaps you want to get on later, but uh, the idea of the whole uh, problem of how to address uh, mentally ill individuals and how police should interact with them and, and what can be done to, to try and improve that situation, which is the subject of a, an ongoing uh, public debate. Uh, and I say public, I don't mean it's in the, only in the public forum, but it's also within legal, judicial, uh, and law enforcement circles. It's, it's, it's a hot topic. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that when I get to the appeal pro, uh, part of, of what I want to ask you about, because I, I do think... Uh, it raises some interesting questions, but in this particular case, the judge said aggravating factors outweighed mitigating factors. Explain that. Well, uh, when sentencing occurs, um, a, a judge will uh, have to look at a lot of different things that go into sentencing, and, and, and amongst those things, it's like you can think of it like as a scale, where you tip the scale uh, in one side or another and towards a, a more serious or less serious sentence. So the aggravating sentence uh, factors would obviously be the fact that there was a life lost. It's a very serious offense. It carries a very heavy penalty, uh, at least in terms of maximums, even minimums. 
and um, that uh, uh, it uh, has such a public high profile and the need for accountability. And the, and the, and the uh, mitigating factors, I presume, I'm not you know, privy to all of this, but I'm assuming that uh, this uh, officer is, uh, you know, obviously, I would presume, has no previous record. He's gainfully employed. He's probably got a family he supports. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's discharging an important public function and uh, probably has a lot of other antecedents and other good character uh, that he can trade into the equation and probably is not going to be somebody you'd see again in the criminal courts. It's, uh, so so you'd, you have to weigh all those things. And, and sentencing for a judge always has to be appropriate, not just to the offense, but to the offender. It's, sentencing is notoriously the, probably one of the most single difficult uh, tasks in the criminal justice system, and ultimately it comes to a head with the judge who has to impose the sentence and take responsibility for it. Sure. And in this case, I mean, we're dealing with mandatory minimums, which yes, came in with the Harper government. And and I think and this was we'll talk about this with the appeals. But, you know, the the, the um, lawyer for Priscilla had uh, said, look, officers should be exempt from this because they're not the ones that were supposed to be impacted by this. It was for the gangsters and all the other bad people. But police officers have to carry a gun. Therefore, they shouldn't be hit with mandatory minimums. It's an interesting argument, and I had thought about it. Just for your information, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the offense of attempt to commit murder has a, uh, a, a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. It, uh, and, and in the case of where a firearm is used, um, in a case like this, there are other uh, circumstances, but the one that applies here would be uh, a firearm being used and a minimum of four years. So, right, I can see the argument. On the other hand, on the other hand, one might well say it doesn't make any difference if you've lawfully got the firearm in the first place or not. If you've used it unlawfully and committed this particular offense, you're you're just as uh, accountable as anybody else. So it's uh, in that, because you look and you say, did you commit an offense? And once you committed the offense, did you use a firearm to do it? Because the argument will be that the firearm is given to the police officer to discharge his responsibilities lawfully and within the bounds of the law. And if he exceeds that, which obviously the uh, decision of the court by finding him guilty says you committed an offense, then then you've you've gone outside what is otherwise uh, permitted by society and by the law. Yeah, it's interesting because the judge was uh, pretty scathing in his his sentencing today, saying that uh, Frasillo, you know, had a specific intent to kill and that it was unjustified and unreasonable. But it's not like the officer went to work and said, I'm going to go kill someone today. No, no, you I, know, I, and I, he wouldn't have known what, what the mental illness or the drugs, uh, you know, he was in the situation at the moment. I, I, there's no question. On the other hand, when you're in a situation at the moment, you have to deal with it appropriately. So uh, uh, I think what you just said is, I mean, everybody could accept that. Uh, the police officer didn't wake up one morning and think, I'm going to go and commit a homicide or try to. But but he's he's now in a situation... Uh, that he has to address, and like any citizen who is presented with the situation, you have choices and you have to make uh, lawful choices. So the, the decision the, of the jury uh, and the verdict is that's water under the bridge. It may be something for an appeal court to decide, but at this point, the trial judge has a responsibility of imposing a sentence that is based upon, he's got to take it as a given. The jury has said this man is guilty of attempt murder, so what's to be done? And so um, it seems to me that he's he's, he's faced with this uh, very difficult problem, and uh, obviously that's the decision he's made. It's interesting. We're talking to uh, Jeffrey Reed, who's an attorney here in Hamilton, and one of the things that uh, has always stuck with me is if it had not been for witnesses 
taking out their phones and putting this all over the internet, if there had not been video, I don't even think this case would have made it into a courtroom. Well, yeah, and you can apply that observation in so many circumstances uh, throughout uh, uh, society and uh, where we've seen interactions between police and citizens and, uh, and, and the use of uh, video recording, which is, you know, cuts both ways. Sometimes it can, can validate and, uh, and exonerate uh, a police officer. Mm-hmm. So, look, you did the right things. On the other hand, uh, there are other times it makes people accountable. And, and you sort of ask the question in some of these situations. I'm just talking about Officer uh, Forcillo and, and, uh, and Sammy Yatine, but I'm also talking about all those ones that we see some very, very notorious circumstances in uh, south of the border, and, and, and they're not exclusively there, but, but you know, where people have. Uh, had these interactions, and you wonder, but for the fact that there was a, a somebody with a cell phone recording it, uh, uh, how would we know? And and how would have been how would have been reported? Um, it really raises a real question. But I think that uh, it's interesting when you talk about this use of um, of uh, recording by the public. Um, there, when it first started occurring, we saw some circumstances where police would sort of step in and say, "Hey, you can't do that. You're not allowed to." Well, the courts have made it perfectly clear. It's a free society, you know, and 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 uh, a cat can look at a king, as the saying goes. And if you're in a public place, well, you, you can be. There can be a video recording. So, so it, I think it ultimately probably will keep everybody better accountable and ultimately lead to everybody doing things properly, uh, both sides, citizens and police alike. Yeah, and and obviously for the cops, wearing a lapel camera, which is a big, big debate. It, it just mind-blowing to me that in this day and age, officers are not wearing them. And I know that there are officers that I do not want to wear them, but for their protection and for transparency, I just think at this point, it's a it's a no-brainer. Right, and you know, we see citizens doing it. I mean, uh, uh, you go down to your local auto park, store and you find uh, vi- you know video cams that can be put onto your dashboard or the back of your car. I see cyclists sometimes going around, they have a camera on their helmet. There's all kinds of people who are doing this in all kinds of contexts. So, Yeah, well, it's, uh, I think, the uh, future of this, and um, I don't see how we're going to get away from doing it. But, you know, certainly as we see cases on the other side of the border, we've got a case in Ottawa unfolding of of police now being investigated. And so, you know, it's their word versus our word, and I just think it would all be settled, everyone put on a camera, and it becomes really crucial evidence. It's not not, uh, foolproof, uh, but it it goes a long way to creating a better record of reality, uh, you know, so that uh, we, we, we don't have to puzzle about these things and we don't have to sort through quite so many uh, incomplete or inconsistent accounts. It, it will help that a long way, mostly. It's, it's interesting because the judge in this case said he was uh, fairly limited in what he could could do in sentencing, given it was a jury decision on this thing. Um, but he did point out that Mr. F- uh, Constable Forsillo uh, never showed remorse, and that's not to say he's not remorseful, but he did not show remorse, as, so, but that he does not deserve leniency. Well, if I could just sort of walk you through very briefly uh, how sentencing works. Uh, um, for We can sort of say hypothetically for any given offense in those circumstances and that offender, there's going to be a, an appropriate sentence. And actually, it's more like a range of sentence, uh, where as long as the court gives a sentence within that appropriate range, it's neither outside the range too high or too low, that it'll be considered valid. So, so having said that, then um, the issue of remorse can come up uh, typically, for example, not exclusively, but in the case where, say, somebody has pleaded guilty and demonstrated an accountability and demonstrated some remorse through that uh, plea, well, it's, then the judge might say, I'm going to reduce the sentence from what it would, should otherwise be, be uh, to recognize that because that's a mitigating factor. And you talked about aggravating mitigating factors. That's a, that's a really, really important mitigating factor. So, 
people shouldn't misunderstand. The theory of the law is that you don't get sentenced more for fighting the case and losing, because you have a constitutional right that cannot be taken away. You always have that. But you can be rewarded with some leniency if you decide to plead. So the guy who robs a bank, mm-hmm. you know, if he uh, uh, normally the sentence, let's pretend in his circumstances, should be, say, eight years. Let's say that's it. But, you know, he pleaded guilty. The court will say that shows a good attitude, uh, maybe more prospect for rehabilitation and other things, save some time and money to the state and, and anxiety to the witnesses, yada, yada, yada. And so we'll give you a discount. Maybe you should only get five or six years instead of that eight years that we would otherwise have done. So you don't get sentenced heavier for fighting and losing, but you can get sentenced more leniently if you show uh, uh, leniently if you show some remorse. In this case, the judge obviously made a statement that you just told me about that he didn't see any sign of remorse. So, so this case is already going to be appealed. They've made it very clear, and I understand a bail hearing is going to be heard at two thirty this afternoon. So right. theoretically, uh, Constable Forsillo could be out of jail today. Yes. Um, what happens generally when an officer goes to jail? Well, the first thing is, uh, I don't pretend to be an expert on this side of it in corrections law, but, but uh, it, the first thing is the correctional authorities are going to uh, begin by um, keeping him separate because he's clearly at risk. And now, would that be for the whole sentence? Uh, it'll depend. Likely for a good part of it. So in a serious sentence like this, which involves uh, a penitentiary sentence, and uh, they'll go through a classification system. All, all, all offenders go through the classification system, which is a period of uh, many weeks and, and perhaps even months where they uh, look at the individual, they go through all the records, they try to figure out how high risk this individual is, what this person's needs are, uh, and then they say, well, how do we classify maximum or medium or minimum security? And I I can conceive of a a situation where um, once he's sort of gone through that classification and if he demonstrates to the the authorities that he's not a management risk, he's not a flight risk, he's He's, 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 he's not going to cause a problem as a, as a prisoner. Uh, he could wind up very well in a minimum security circumstance and may very well mix with other individuals who are not seen to be uh, hostile or aggressive. So you could imagine, for example, mm-hmm. there may be um, so-called white-collar crime criminals who are mixing, who aren't sort of seen as, uh, as, as likely to be aggressive and hostile and therefore a threat, because ultimately the state's got to be responsible for the welfare of everybody, including its prisoners. They should do that. As far as the appeal process, um, you know, do you see this case going to the Supreme Court of Canada? I mean, there are several grounds that I think that, that they'll appeal this on, but is this the kind of case that will go to the Supreme Court trying it, it, to get, you know, officers taken out of this mandatory minimum category? Uh, good question. Uh, I don't have an answer. It's, it certainly is capable of doing that. It, it really is going to depend a lot on um, exactly what the uh, uh, rulings were in that that, that may support uh, a valid appeal, because appeals are largely based on the record of what occurred at the trial, and, and the appeal lawyers are looking, uh, those who want to appeal, are looking to find some error, uh, alleged error, that they think not only occurred, but made a difference in the result and therefore get a result. And on the sentencing side, which is the one you specifically looked at, where they want to challenge that, um, I think it's possible because, uh, first of all, we have an individual who uh, uh, has a, a huge personal stake, but he's also, you know, a police officer and and it's not unreasonable to think that institutionally speaking, uh, the uh, police association and, and others of a similar ilk may very well share an interest in, in uh, trying to overturn the application of a mandatory minimum in their circumstances. So there may be the resources behind this 
to uh, take it farther. But it, but there still has to be a you know a, a sound legal ground for it. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, uh, off the top of my head and from what you've said, I can see that potential. Yeah. Well. I'm certainly sure we'll be following it. It's a fascinating case. Thanks so much for your insight, Jeffrey. Uh, you're welcome. Anytime, Alex. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It's all about the Toronto police officer now behind bars, where he will spend six years for the shooting death of 18-year-old Sammy Yatim. You know, one of the big factors in this case was that Yatim had mental illness. I mean, yes, drugs did play a role, but he was sick. And it was a big part of the issue and a big part of the trial. Of course, Constable Fursillo would not have known that when they arrived on scene. So a large part of the case was centered around the argument that the officer believed, that despite firing three shots into the team, and then Mr. Yatim falling to the ground, he then fired six more shots, claiming that he believed Yatim was still a threat. And the judge said that just simply did not wash It was the details of Yatim's illness and his mental illness that only came out after the fact by witness testimony and witness and and, and video. It just makes what is a terrible case even worse. You know, all he wanted to do was talk to his dad. And things spiraled out of control. You know, thank God for video that we may finally have a case that results in real change in how police deal with people who have mental illness, and I think the system as a whole. Let's bring in Oram, Oren Amate, who is a sociolo- is a psychologist or sociologist? I always get it wrong, Oren. Psychologist. There you go. Psychologist. You're the smart guy. And it's uh, Oren, is it Oren Doc, um, ha- what's your uh, web address? DocAmate.com. There you, is that new? Uh, no, it's been around for a while, but I have a podcast that's on it now. Perfect. The real reality. Okay. Uh, so I would assume a case like this obviously sticks out to you. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, because it's, be- it's just become such, this case has made it such a big issue, is how we deal with mental illness, which I, I have for long thought we are failing people with mental illness. Yeah, we are at all levels. And here's the thing. First of all, let's never forget the government is the number one failure. Or, okay, um, They have the ability and the funds uh, you know, even if they have to stretch those funds to make, uh, you know, resources available, whether it's counseling, whether it's groups, what, hotlines, whatever. Yeah, I don't want to play this at the feet of the, the police because I'm not going to lay blame in one. But you're right. I think the blame starts there. It really does at all levels, federal, provincial and municipal. We just aren't putting the funding in there. And second, people always say, but wait, aren't we doing better? Isn't there less stigma around it and so on? And, you know, possibly. But if you look at individuals and I work with so many people um, and when you look at their families, you know, it may be as a society we're getting better, but what the people are hearing more directly is how their family are treating mental illness, and, and there's still a lot of stigma in individual families. And in cases like this, as you say, you know, there's a systemic problem where we don't know, or a lot of people don't know, how to react to somebody who's struggling. Yeah, there's a number of cases that have uh, become high profile. There's a case ongoing in Ottawa right now where police attended a scene and and the Somalian man was was initially you know, he was inevitably right. killed. Uh, it's still under investigation, but there are reports that he was mentally ill. He was scared of the police. So we get these cases. Um, but the bottom line is police don't know when they're approaching someone of what the medical situation is. They, they couldn't have known that Sammy Yatim had a mental illness. And so how do you deal with someone when you don't know the history? Exactly. It's, you know, it's, there's no simple answer, but I think, and I've spoken with different um, people who are in, like, the first responders, 
and I don't want to generalize, but what several different types of first responders have told me is their own direct experience with police is that the police come in, and again, it's not all police, but too many police come in, and they, they, instead of de-escalating, their attitude from the start is, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show up with a, a sign of force, okay, a display of force, and, and you can just feel the tension. And again, these are from other, you know, first responders, whether they're fire people, whether, you know, firefighters, and, uh, paramedics, they see this by their own colleagues, the police. So that's the wrong attitude. The proper attitude is, regardless of what the person is dealing with, unless they're hopped up on some really you know, hard drug like PCP or something and they're acting wildly and you keep your distance, if it's anybody else, you try to come with a calming presence. Yeah, First I mean, in, in this case, Semiotim was on a streetcar. It did have people on it. He was said right. to have been exposing himself. Not sure if he was a threat, but he did have a knife. And so there was a lot of confusion. And I obviously, when the police attend, they're going to attend... Uh, with a couple of things. They want to protect the public at large, um, and, and they want to put the person down. In this case, it would have been semi Yatim. But again, I think as, a, as an officer, it would have to be very, very challenging to oh, know how to handle a situation. Have, you know, I, I've, I've been in situations where I'm you know, in hospitals, when I used to work in the hospital, um, where we had patients, and it, they, you know, I'm in very close proximity. I don't have a weapon on me. Okay, and I see that they're about to act out, and and it could be literally anything, and so it's being trained to keep your composure. And if someone has a weapon, and I understand this, I mean, I, m- many times I understand that police they're doing an impossible job. I would never want to do that. They're at risk all the time. Uh, but if the circumstances allow it, which this case did, I you know I know there was not that much of a distance between them, but he was on a streetcar. That adds to the mm-hmm. difficulty of him trying to get out and attack people, you know, attack the officers. There was enough distance where they could have, you know, they had him secluded. There weren't any people, I believe, on the streetcar uh, anymore once they got out. They could have talked to him from outside and tried to de-escalate instead of firing inside. And that's what they have to remember. It's, it's really, you, if you're dealing with someone unstable or just someone who looks aggressive or angry, um, you just try to de-escalate from a safe distance. Yeah, that's I, th- the first I think obviously when you see the video footage of this case, you know, three bullets into someone, he was on the ground. And I think the, the, the shocking, the really, really shocking part of this is that then you see six more shots volleyed, this volley of shots. And the guy's down. He's not going to be able to do anything, but nonetheless, I, I want to get you to stand by, Orrin, because I want to go to the phone lines uh, to have either a question or a comment on this issue that maybe you can address. Sue joins us. Hi, Sue. Hi. I just want to comment that I agree with the last person that was talking there. Um, this police officer shot three times. The guy was down. He had no reason to shoot six more times. And when a police officer goes to a situation... This has been years and years they've done this. They don't sit there and say, oh, well, we have to assess like, if this guy's nuts or that. They can see whether a person's on drugs, whether, you know, aggressive because they're angry about something. And like this other guy just said, he shot three times, he was down. So the danger was over with. Well, didn't, he didn't need to shoot six more times. And as far as I'm concerned, he should have got a lot more than five or six years. Thanks so much, Sue, for your uh, comment. And, and, and Oren, that's what we were saying. I mean, a lot of people look at this and say, well, the, the, the imminent danger was over. But if you've got a mental illness, can you, can you kind of take on a superhero kind of strength? I mean, could he have gotten up? I don't think he could have. I don't think he was a threat. I don't think he was a threat from that position. I mean, he looked like he was immobile, and we, we know it later on that it severed the spine, the, sure. the, the one of the first three bullets, so he couldn't have. But, you know, even then, I mean, if someone's in an episode of mania, the, the previous caller said that, you know, you can tell that if they're on drugs or whatever. The fact is, in fact, if someone is actually in a manic episode, 
they can look like they are high on drugs. So if he was standing, if he was mobile, if he was you know uh, charging, that would be different. And I could understand you know the need to you know for the officers to protect themselves. But he was in a prone position. And no, mental illness doesn't give you a superhuman strength. What it could do is if you are psychotic, if you've actually lost touch with reality, and too many people think psychotic means psychopathic. No, it means you've had a break from reality. Um, you're not there. Your body's there, but your mind's not quite there in many cases. Um, it, you know, in that case, they might be impervious to to pain. Uh, it might take many, many blows to subdue them. They're not, you know, they're not functioning normally. Uh, but this was very different. He was lying on the ground immobilized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other area that really saddens me, and, and I've had to deal with it several times, is the court process. You know, uh, if you've ever been to the courts of the mentally ill, I mean, it, or, it's so degrading. And i got to be honest, it's not just the policing aspect that I think needs work. It's just the whole system as a, uh, you know, in its totality of how we deal with the mentally ill. I mean, it's, it's a very degrading process. It really is. I mean, sometimes I have seen sometimes where, you know, I've seen the flip side of that, where, in fact, they've shown compassion where someone, you know, normally would have gotten a certain, uh, you know, charge or done some time, but they realize the person's state of mind and they try to, you know, um, divert them so they don't do time or, you know, they have a more lenient sentence. So there are those cases. But, yes, in many cases, even calling, you know, saying it's, it's a me- you know, the mentally ill, mm-hmm. even that, it's like saying, you know, it's a whole different category of person. It's a subhuman when, no, it's a normal human being, a typical human being who's unfortunately dealing with something at the time or a long-standing issue uh, that, that they're just not able to function as well as they would like to. And we have to also, un- you know, it's kind of distinguished because someone who's depressed, um, you know, is, is going to present very differently from someone who's having a psychotic episode as in schizophrenia, and we can't lump them all together. Um, someone who's psychotic truly is not criminally responsible. They are not in control of their own mind. But somebody who's depressed, unless they're having a psychotic episode, which 20% of severely depressed people do, um, you know, they are in control of their faculties. They may not function that well, but we can't treat them all with the, you know, in the, with the mm-hmm. same brush. So the same brush. in a perfect world, if you could sum it up in, in 45 seconds, uh, what is the fix? What does the government at each level have to do to, f- to start fixing this? They have to put money into, first of all, providing services for people with mental health issues. We don't have them. Start at school. All the funding has been cut off in school, or a lot of it has. So start mm-hmm. with school. Start with uh, covering psychologists so that people can get you know, care from a psychologist, not from a psychiatrist who's only going to give them medication and not help. Start by putting money into policing proper. You, put, uh, you, know, you have a system in place where the police learn how to compose themselves and how to have empathy and compassion and how to deal with someone struggling with a difficult uh, issue, like mental health issue. And um, and then just further education uh, to the, pub- the, bra- uh, the the mass public. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that this case is the catalyst because you know we're, we're already talking about it in the media. We are talking about it. We are more understanding to it. But the government's got to catch up. So. They do, and they fail. Again, I can't say enough. They have failed on all counts, and they just they pay a lot of lift service, and it, it, falls, it, it comes from them. They have yeah. the money. They have the funding. Put it to good use. Stop wasting on all these other things that the government has been doing. All right, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure as always. What's your, what's your website, your podcast again? DocAmate.com, and the podcast is The Real Reality on SoundCloud. My, pl- my, uh, my appreciation to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's uh, Oren Armate uh, joining us today to talk about this. I always get his name wrong, and I've known him for years. But nonetheless, uh, always has a lot of good insight in this. It's not uh, fair to just lay this at the police. Uh, they've got to have the training. It starts at the government, all three levels, and they've got to start getting on this. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This Toronto guy pours concrete by day, but he spends every minute of his time 
off hunting. He hunts predators. His name, Justin Payne, he's making quite a name for himself as a vigilante pedophile hunter. So every day, the 28-year-old construction worker spends his time on dating sites. He poses as a girl, a little girl, age 9 to 11. And he lures men. And he arranges to meet with them. And according to him, almost as soon as he goes online, the men start lining up, some as old as 60. Once the meeting is set, he then makes his move. He goes, he introduces himself to the alleged predator, and then he videotapes their reaction. Take a listen. I'm just wondering, we're actually wondering why you can't meet the 13-year-old girl. I'm sorry. All the time spent, all the things that I've had to listen to, you're not going to lie to me. So he goes out and he documents all of this. And his work is being seen by thousands around the world. Some folks love that he is doing this, trying to keep kids safe. And that's why he says he does it. He wants to keep children safe. But the police have talked to him and they're saying, stop playing hero. Not only is it dangerous to him, but it's a real interference with the legal process. I want to bring in Joe Newberger, who is a criminal lawyer here in Hamilton. Hello, Joe. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. So where do you see the issue? The police say, you know, vigilante justice is just, you can't do it. And uh, a lot of people say, hey, if he's stopping predators, I don't care. What do you say? I agree with the police. Um, This is potentially very dangerous. I mean, I think he's been rather fortunate up till now. But you can imagine he might run across somebody who um, takes great objection to his sting operation. And, And I'm not questioning why he's doing it, although, you know, you are putting yourself at extreme risk, but there could be a potentially violent confrontation with somebody, which is not good. The other thing is there are police investigations ongoing all the time with respect to child exploitation, and frankly, uh, in Ontario, if not Canada, we have a very robust, uh, highly successful uh, police network that works on this the cyber crimes, etc., mm-hmm. on a regular basis, and they do a very good job of it. So this can interfere with legitimate police investigation. And I'm going to say one more thing. I know I'm talking a lot, but, Mm-mm. you know, the other thing is, if, let's say, he sets himself up as this uh, 11-year-old or 12-year-old girl, once contact has been made with a uh, potential uh, perpetrator, he could contact the authorities and have them become involved to take it from there. But he doesn't. He goes an extra step further. And uh, I think that poses significant difficulty because although he may be shaming these individuals, who knows if they're going to stop and legitimate police investigations based on sound evidence results in arrests and then prosecutions, which we're not having in this case. Yeah, I mean, and, and I agree with you. Uh, Canada, I mean, leads the way in many ways in sex crimes, uh, certainly against children. So I agree with you that we have some of the best in the country working on this. But, you know, Justin Payne feels that we are not acting quickly enough as a lawyer if Let's just say one of his alleged predators comes to you and says, I've been videotaped by this guy. It's on the Internet. Uh, what would you do? I mean, you you can't use that evidence. That what that evidence then cannot be used in a court of law, can it? Oh, no, it, it, it possibly could. I mean, this is done by a private citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not a state actor. He's not acting on behalf of any police service at all. So the charter and the constitutional provisions therein do not apply to him. Mm-hmm. So when somebody wants to go on the Internet and troll these sites and have contact with somebody who they believe to be an 11-year-old, they're assuming the risk that they could run into somebody who's not an 11-year-old and make videotaped. And, uh, and when it's recorded and posted on the Internet, 
uh, it's not a pleasant thing for these individuals, but uh, there's very little that I could do as a criminal lawyer to assist them in that regard. But uh, but what I guess the, the further to that, the video footage, can it be entered in against somebody by the by the police if the police didn't collect it? Well, police collect evidence all the time that um, uh, private citizens use. So let's say, let's take a domestic context, and there's an argument going on between uh, two ex-spouses. One of them decides to surreptitiously record the exchange in which a very serious threat is made. Well, that's admissible in a criminal context, and unfortunately I've run up against that a number of times in various cases where, in fact, somebody records a conversation, and the conversation itself is not helpful to my client, but there really is no way to exclude it. It's, it's also similar to, let's uh, consider a corporate fraud. Somebody uh, is engaged in a corporate fraud. The internal security department interviews the individual. They're not state actors. They're simply acting uh, with the interests of the company. That interview, if the person subjects themselves to it and answers the questions, is also admissible at a trial. So this does happen quite often, and it can be very powerful evidence. Sure. It's like, you know, video kind of says it all. Uh, so what would be the best way for this, for Justin Payne, then to help? I mean, because he doesn't look at, he's not stopping. He's been told to stop and he doesn't plan to stop. Yeah, and I think that's a problem. I mean, A, you don't want this to be uh, sort of a call to action uh, by other citizens to try and take up the mantle for other areas of the law that they may feel is not being dealt with um, properly. Uh, so that could cause additional problems, and I think Mr. Payne should listen to the police, and, and if he wanted to cooperate, he could, you know, do this once in a while and pass on the information to the police. The IP address of a computer or a smartphone which is used can be traced very easily by the police, and they can take up the investigation. So he could be assisting in that regard if he wants, but I really think that any uh, citizen who is engaged in anything and the police are giving him direction to stop should be listening to the police. Yeah, it's an interesting because so many people get wrapped up in the emotions of it because no one wants anyone to prey upon a child. Uh, but at the same time, are you doing more damage in the bigger picture than you are doing good is, is the question really that he, he needs to answer. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, there can be other ramifications that occur as a result of this, um, uh, which could be a big problem. And um, uh, I, I just think he could be potentially interfering unwittingly with ongoing investigations because he doesn't have knowledge as to what ongoing investigations uh, are occurring and uh, he does not want to interfere with those investigations. Not and to mention if the cops come to him thinking that he's luring someone, he can get himself into trouble. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's, what's interesting and what can be quite devastating about the Internet is that everything that you write and correspond with is, is recorded and always retrievable. You, you, you know, you, you can delete it, but through a forensic analysis with the appropriate technology, you can recover anything. So if, if he was doing something inappropriate at the time, that could be an issue. Now, if he takes his, his uh, situation too far, right now what he's doing is technically legal, but he could cross the line at some point and engage in some conduct as well that could become a criminal offense. Yeah, well, we'll stay tuned. It's interesting. Joe, thanks for your insight. Oh, pleasure. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I want to uh, share with you a video because mommy said she wanted it to go viral and boy did she get her wish and I'd have to think she got far more attention than she bargained for. It, it, this video is unbelievable and we'll get it up on our, our uh, website but it's a five mini, minute live streamed video showing mommy dearest screaming, swearing, 
and beating, not spanking, full-out beating her 16-year-old daughter who had posted some yeah, saucy pictures of herself to her boyfriend on Facebook. Just take a listen to a tiny, teeny, tiny portion of this mummy. You only think pain and you want to be a doctor. Get your grades up in school before you think about opening your leg and trying to start on Facebook. Actually be nice to your sister. Don't that make sense? <laughs> now, I'm going to need y'all to send this Bible. Please share this. Because I'm not done. More to come. That is like a tiny portion of this video. I get the frustration of a parent. I mean, it is tough today trying to teach your kids the dangers of posting online. I get that. But there's discipline. And then there is over the line beating, degrading, and brutalizing. This this 16-year-old was in a corner getting pummeled by her mother and screamed at. It's unbelievable. You've got to go see the video. But I also wonder about the long-term damage of what this mom did. I mean, it's far worse than what the child did posting pictures. So not only is this Mommy Dearest not only not getting Mommy of the Year award, but she's trying to publicly shame her daughter. And now, now that like half a million people have seen it, she's now being investigated by the police and children's service. It's unbelievable. So when does discipline go too far? If you've got, would you do this? Would you post video of your kid? I mean, it's not the first time I've seen it. I've seen lots of parents do this. I think they think it's funny and cheeky, but it always backfires. It always backfires. Give us a call, 905-645-3221 or star 9900, because we just seem to be in this moment, and I don't think it's going to go away. But folks are posting stuff looking for some kind of either fame or reward, and they just don't think of the consequences. So who did I think of when I wanted to do this segment? Who else? Adam Oldfield. Hello, Adam Oldfield of Tech Talk and, of course, FPM Marketing. Hi. Hey, Alex. Did you see oh, that video? I did. I did. You know what? And uh, it, it's crazy where you see, you know, we used to hear about the Super Bowl ads, which still have some fame, but I think... If we take a look at where people are, you know, aside from the fact of what this woman did, it's, as you addressed, what is it, the ramifications that these videos we post, the, the photos that we post, the artwork that we post, this is public media. And when you put this up, or Facebook, in this case, this, this uh, situation where the, where the mother was slapping her daughter out of frustration, anger, and embarrassment, and doing the same in return is... You know, what, what does it result in? What are the ramifications of this? And, you know, there's many lem- levels of this. Number one is, uh, in her case, she showcased herself in a way that she thought was de- demeaning and teaching her daughter a lesson. And I'm sure we're going to hear what the results of what uh, the investigations are turning into. But in other elements of when you post your video and, and your, your materials, your artwork, or, you know, I mean... What what we tend to forget is when people do this, you got to really think about the good and the bad. When you post it, it's got great intentions because we want to post with a purpose. But sometimes you got to step back, take a breath, and really think about what is it people might say about what it is you're about to put up. And this is an example of that. Yeah, always do the gut check. Now, she did go online after and posted, I love my daughter, but I won't be disrespected. Okay, great. You've just put something online that will be there 
forever. Um, and and I, as I understand, she used the live streaming service, service Periscope, I think, to do this. First of all, A, what makes someone go to, hey, I'm going to post this online live and, you know, not even think that, okay, this is going to be there forever. So my daughter um, is now going to have to live with this for the rest of her life. Well, I, I, what she was using was Facebook Live. And when she put it on, and, and obviously to her to her viewers, if you will, I mean, you know, when, when they do this, there's, again, like I say, her purpose was obviously one of which she acted out in anger. And I mean, heck, we, we've all probably seen those. Um, you know, if we're going to take an example during the last federal election, how many uh, potential candidates that were running for MPs had tweeted out something inappropriately or, you know, responded without thinking clearly about what was being said, whether it was about history or, or something anti-Semitic or whatever was said. And you know what? This, this, folks, is exactly what you're dealing with. Now, you know, you take a look at 900CHML and other medias, they're controlled. They're actually managed and operated by, by individuals like yourself that are professional. You, you know, you, you and don't let's let's not call a spade a spade. We've had our fair mistakes, right, Alex? Said of the wrong thing, but at the end, this whole media, when all of us are the stars, and you're putting this stuff up, um, you could be getting yourself into a position. I'm well, well interestingly, thing. let me stop you there because I am protected. Yes, while I'm sitting in the CHML studio or chorus. I mean, yes, I'm sure I'd have access to a lawyer, but when I go home and I'm Alex Pearson, mommy, and uh, just Alex, if I go and post something online, I'm not protected. That's on me. I suffer the consequences. Absolutely. And and this is the part where you are using a medium. That's why it's called social media, is that you're using a medium that's going to be reaching to a large group. Do you remember back about 2012 when a video came out by a girl named Rebecca Black? Yes. It was called Friday. You remember that? Oh, how can I forget? This cheesy song, and it went viral. Went great. Well, here's this, you know, 16-year-old girl who basically, or at the time 15, here she is having fun, using auto-tune, does this little video with her friends. It launches, and everyone's watching it, not out of the sake of they love the song, but they were loving it, not laughing at it. It turned into a six-week debacle, which, by the way, has almost 100 million views, and it actually took uh, Katy Perry to come out and basically say, let me help you with a song, put you in it, and revise it so it basically sounds a little more mainstream. But it pretty much destroyed this girl. No, she didn't do anything wrong in the video. She didn't do anything that was, you know, arbitrarily inappropriate. She was very cute. It's actually, uh, if anything, it's all age acceptable. It's about her getting up in the morning going to school. But, you know, and it's got a lot of bitter repeat. It almost, like, destroyed this girl. Well, she did make a lot of money, but again, she was ridiculed very heavily. She was threatened. She had to be homeschooled. Mm. I mean, she, they were, it went from fun and cute to all of a sudden being bullied, death threats. I mean, it, what happened to this simple, I just wanted to be seen, and all of a sudden I'm being now uh, uh, torn down to nothing. So now let's take another side. That's all the video, if I may. But let's look. There's been a big case right now, which, by the way, is in the courts in the U.S., where people are posting their artwork on Facebook. Now, these are videos which can be embarrassing. Let's just talk on a very different stream, but the same premise. People are posting, you know, you're proud about your artwork. You post it on Facebook. Share it with your friends. There's actually a gentleman yet to be named who takes this artwork out of Pinterest, uh, out of Facebook, and he, he will take it from these social medias, and he prints it, and he's selling it for thousands, if not millions of dollars in art galleries, and I think it's called Social Media Gallery, and it's other people's work. 
And so this big thing in cases, well, wait a minute, who has the rights of this? Well, under the terms and conditions, Facebook doesn't really care what you post, but they own and control the property. The same with all the social medias. So when you're posting live of you teaching your daughter or your son a lesson, if you're uh, uh, you know, doing a music video that you think is cute, you are releasing all the rights and permissions of this material to that actual media source. And that's, that's where the danger could come. So part of it is being able to understand, and I don't think people really do understand, what they're getting themselves into when they're posting this information online. Yeah, it's interesting because recently, uh, and it's not always bad, recently we saw the live video of shooting, remember that Minnesota man uh, who was shot and killed by police as his wife or girlfriend was in the car and the four-year-old was in the back. That was just a couple of weeks ago and she decided to, I guess, periscope or or live stream the event. Um, And of course it brought out all sorts of reaction, but it was a documentation about you know, alleged police brutality exposed. And so it can be used as a tool of good, but people are just citizen journalists now everywhere. They're just, they automatically think, okay, social media, go. And and we're using it as our news resource. Let's also keep in mind, that, you know, Facebook is not uh, prohibiting us from promoting more of our material. In fact, they're giving us more tools to make it easier. They're making it more robust for us to even push it. In fact, if your video is successfully being found and searched and uh, uh, launched across the board, they're using this, folks, uh, for a lot of purposes of their own financial gain because now they've got more viewers, they've got more people connected, and between that video there's going to be an ad. I mean, we could probably see that on most of the posts that are going on with YouTube. Otherwise, there's a little ad that's going on, or it may connect with something of, of which... You know, uh, uh, it's a it's a Ford vehicle that we saw this incident take place on, and there happens to be a brand new Ford Focus. It's the new energy efficient. I mean, what is this? Is the part which really kills me? This is how they make their money. So they feed off this. Now, why do people do this? I'm no psychologist, but I think one of the things we we want to do is to be appreciated. It's the same thing with Facebook, and we want to get as many likes as we as we as we can. And, and you know, now you can put different emotions on it and if you're angry, you're sad, you're happy, or you just like it for that matter. These are our emotional ways. So when we see something like a video of a mom treating, you know, teaching her daughter a lesson, which was a little extreme and over the bo- overboard. Well, a little? A, a little? little? Okay, it, was, it was completely out of it looks like she, she beat just, the hell out of her. It was more than a little, Adam. Yeah, I was going to say it was a it was a little abrupt. I'm just trying to keep it politically correct <laughs> for the moment here, Alex. <laughs> I'm beginning to question what, what kind of dad are you? <laughs> well, I mean, one one breath short of taking her daughter's head and slamming it in the water. There you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a, it was definitely uh, brutality to the to the point of which was unacceptable, and it was a little over over the top in regard to how she approached it and fixes her hair, and it's it's like wow. You know, like, this is something of which, obviously, how she wants to conduct uh, managing her daughter. But, you know, using this field of media to express her concern. Here's the thing. Why are we using social media for the sake of of public uh, uh, sharing with our public our our actions and our, our, you know, what's telling the world what's going on in our lives? And this is where it can be overblown. And you, and you look at what's going on with this, it will have long-term effect, especially with this woman. It's not over yet. She's going to be dealing with something much bigger, and that includes not only the authorities, but she's probably going to get a little more, I would say, uh, heat 
in the future based on her actions with this video. Well, because anytime she goes to look for a job, employment, anything like that, I mean, there's no question employment, employees today do a check through social media. They want to know exactly what you're doing online. And if you don't represent their value system, they're not going to hire you. So she's going to have to deal with that. The daughter's going to have to, she'll always forever be known as that child who was, you know, beaten up in in the kitchen of the house. Well, exactly. And her daughter's going to now have it. I mean, it's almost like, now, it will probably be, be forgotten by next week. Because there will be another story of some sort that's going to probably, you know, liven up or, or, you know, take it to the next degree. But, you know, you got to be careful. Listen, the bottom line is this. You have a lot of viewers. Everybody does. Everyone's got a lot of listeners when you're using social media. Depending on who you're talking to, who you're network, networking with. My daughter, who's seven years old, she, three weeks ago, uh, started up a YouTube channel. And all it is, is and it's, it's, it's something about kitty life forever, and it's her talking about her cats. Very simple, very innocent. You know, we had to take it down because, you know, she's putting it up for her friends, but she was publicly posting videos, and somebody arbitrarily puts on a comment that they, to a seven-year-old that says, you know, next time could you wear something, and I will repeat it, but basically inappropriate. So I'm like, what is going on? Yeah, well, well, shut it down. Why are we publicly putting – this is another discussion between two parents that need to sort out their issues, but at the <laughs> end of the day, my daughter was too young to try to become a TV star in an uncontrolled right. – uh, environment. Yeah, and, and I think you know you have the knowledge and the savvy, but there are a lot of parents out there that want their child's video, whether it's child eating food or giggling or whatever. They want their children out there. I'm very kind. I'm very careful with what I put out there of my child because I do not want to subject him uh, to any. I mean, I do. I, I would flip out if someone co- made a mean comment, but I don't want to subject him to any dangers that lurk out there. And you know that there are a lot of dangers. There's, there's a lot of dangers. There's a lot of risk. I mean, and remember, we don't realize just how much information we're actually posting about ourselves online in regards to not only the videos, like you're more or less making it easy for any perpetrator to be able to see your surroundings if you're filming it at home. Or, you know, I, I always get a little uh, perplexed by this when I see people saying, hey, we're just about, and they're doing videos of we're leaving our house on vacation for a week, and you can see their address. You see them getting into the into the vehicle, and they're heading off to their location. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's like, what are you doing? Why? What? Oh, like, could you not make it any easier for someone to basically rob your place? Uh, uh, you know, or or you know, here we are down in Florida. So, you know, for all the purposes of not only embarrassing yourself for long-term videos you got, you also got to keep in mind, like, when you're doing all these pictures and videos and, and more video is, is, is happening, and we're being encouraged by these social medias to do more. We've got Twitter now telling, hey, make sure you do video. you got Facebook saying, hey, don't even just do video. Post it live. Have your own video show. And then we got YouTube, which, by the way, has always been and will continue to grow in the case of becoming your own self-media superstar, this all, keep in mind, folks, you are opening yourself up to a very, very uncomfortable position of of not only ridicule, but also damages long-term from thieves or otherwise coming in. So you're you're an open book when you put it on the social media about your life. Okay, so then I ask, do Facebook, Twitter, all these, Instagram, whatever else services are out there, do, I mean, it's the Wild West, do they have to some, at some point soon, either make rules or do education on this, because you're right, it is going to continue. But I just, I, it, to me, it's just turning into a complete gong show. And there are going to be some real, real uh, blowbacks for people, I don't think, who are, are ready for it. 
Well, they've had some already, and they've got limitations when we talk about what they're doing. I mean, as far as what you post, I don't think they're ever going to get into that because you can imagine. Well, I don't want to limit freedom of, of expression in that. Like, but but again, if I'm going to post a video and I'm a, a mother beating my child, which I wouldn't be, but you know, when you're live streaming it, shouldn't there be some warning saying what you're about to broadcast? You know, could you know we put warnings on cigarettes, we put warnings on everything else. Well, the, the, this is where the technology is trying to be advanced in the case of where we look at you upload a video, you upload a photo, and now they've got recognition software. The problem is is that, you, again, we're looking at Facebook with 820 million active viewers mm-hmm. a day. And, you know, for someone to monitor every video that goes up, I mean, there's more videos of probably not the ones that we've seen. This, is, this one's just getting some recognition. I'm willing to bet there's a lot more out there. There was a gentleman in Houston who, who you know, was using a gun or something like that to scare uh, uh, his child or something. But, again, how many are going out there and how do they get monitored? Again, I'm not here to speak on behalf of Facebook because they don't disclose all this. One, you accept the terms and conditions that if you're going to be on this media, you are basically making yourself potentially a victim or otherwise using their source. You're not supposed to, and they've got all the terms in there to say, please be advised, you're not supposed to do this. However, how we're going to monitor that is more or less in this case. If it gets out of control, we'll deal with it when it gets there. Yeah, now, look, you, you can't future, police... It will be addressed. Yeah, you, you can't police stupid. I mean, it just, you can't. But <laughs> bottom line, we teach uh, computers in school, and you got to get them early. So I think part of the education, if you're going to teach, is just start teaching this. Because I don't think the older generations may be a different education plan. Uh, you know, platform, but for kids in school, they should be learning the, the, the real consequences. Well, it is. It starts at home. I mean, really, it's about ca- taking accountability and responsibility for, you know, parents to be responsible for their children and making sure, again, that they're act- actually understanding what they're doing and what the rem- And that's difficult because, again, you, you said it perfectly. It's the Wild West right now. It's starting to form. We're getting a little more uh, uh, kind of control in regards to what are the mainstream medias we're looking at. I mean, really, it's Facebook, it's Google, it's Twitter, it's Pinterest. I mean, there's a lot of other ones out there, but these are the key ones. Yeah. And, you know, you look at things like Snapchat as an example. You know, people seem to think like, oh, good, it's only got 30 seconds. No, it stays up there and people can still use and share it. And that was one of the crazes that Snapchat actually elevated to the, to the level it was is because it gave the perception of, hey, look, I'm going to share something for 10 seconds and then it goes away. No, it doesn't go away. It can be used in other forms, but it's a better form of which you can be able to post something with limitation of damages. So that's, that's going to be something we're going to see a little more in the future is there will be more probably controls. Uh, we'll see more recognition in, in light of what you described. Yes, I can see videos being somewhat uh, screened before they actually are posted live. And it's not someone looking at it. It will be an algorithm going through looking for key things that more or less would say, this looks like a violent video. We will, be bo- we will post uh, the following disclosure before anyone will see it. I anticipate that will be coming out very soon. Adam, on that note, thank you. Never short right, for words. Thanks, thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.